This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss questions and controversies surrounding democratic change and resistance to democratic change in Russia. How do we understand the current state of Russian uh, democratic activism and the resistance to it? How can history help to better inform our understanding of these issues? And what role can and should the United States and American citizens beyond the U.S. government play when we think about uh, controversies over democratization in Russia today? We have with us uh, a good friend and one of the most important and highly respected writers on uh, Russian affairs as well as U.S. affairs, uh, Professor Michael Kimmage. He's a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and chair of the Advisory Council for the Kennan Institute, which is one of the foremost think tanks for Russian affairs and U.S.-Russian relations uh, at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. From 2014 to 2017, uh, Michael Kimmage served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And as I'm sure will come up in our discussion, those were eventful years to be uh, overseeing Russian-Ukraine affairs. Is that correct, Michael? Eventful to be sure, yes. <laughs> a pleasure to be with you both. Uh, Michael is the author of a number of important books, books that are major works of scholarship and policy, also fun to read. Uh, his first book, The Conservative Turn, looked at Lionel Trilling, Whitaker Chambers, and the lessons of anti-communism for Americans, uh, and put that actually in a, in a broader global framework. His second book was on Philip Roth. Of course, if you write about Lionel Trilling, you have to write about Philip Roth. In History's Grip, Philip Roth's Newark Trilogy. And then Michael's most recent book, a book that's received a lot of attention and I hope will continue to receive a lot of attention, uh, The Abandonment of the West, History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Most recently, uh, on January uh, 26th uh, of 2021, Michael has published a major article in the New Republic magazine on um, Russia's restoration, questions of democracy and autocracy in Russia today, and what role the United States should play. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we turn to our discussion with Michael, uh, we have, of course, our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? It's a long one. Uh, Russia is approached by USA in a bar, maybe, or moonlit cafe. Wow. I, 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 I love the direction your poetry is going in, Zachary. So uh, let's, hear, let's hear this one. I think this is going to be really interesting. Russia is approached by USA in a bar, maybe, or moonlit cafe. I am the giantess of continents. Watch as I wash my mountains from dirt into two different seas. Come and see. My nation brews a thousand different teas. Find them, my friend, in my phoenixes, my Poughkeepsies. Russia lays her hand upon the shoulder of the child and rolls her anger inwardly from exuberant to mild. You have not seen what I have, son. I have watched your mountains run 10,000 times within my years. You do not know the melody of tears, and have you seen the choruses of continents collide? You may have watched from tower tops as your children fought afar, but our children all were dying then as we watched their fleeting star. 
And have you watched them sink into dust and give up their memory to poetry? America, the lady of the torch, she stands right up and cries, you may know more deaths than I, but heavens, those are lies. And in this tavern or coffee house in Monaco, Zagreb, Mother Russia lost her voice and could only shake her head. You may know of greater woes and paid twice more the devil's fee, but you gray and aging crow, you know nothing of liberty. I wrote the book of government and carved that declaration. Now tell me once again, how historic is your nation? The true sailor of the steppe, she keeps her cards there at her feet, for in truth she already knows that her freedom has us beat. It is stored deep down away in her vast treasuries, that thousand years of hoping far too steep for cracked freedom's double centuries. I love this dialogue, Zachary, between uh, Russia and the United States in this in this tavern. I guess they're drinking vodka and beer or some, some melange of those. Uh, what is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about the way that we as Americans like to think ourselves the progenitors of democracy, uh, when, when in reality, uh, countries like Russia, which we often condescend to as, as, as inherently autocratic, have actually much longer democratic traditions and, and much longer traditions of, of creative thinking than, than we do necessarily. Michael, that seems a perfect uh, point of departure for for our discussion. Um, one of Zachary's points, I think, is that there's a long history that influences uh, contemporary debates about democracy in Russia. H- how should we understand this current moment? How do you, as a historian and a policy expert, how do you how do you explain it? Well, begin by by paying a compliment to Zachary's poem, uh, which is the sort of music of the poem. These are two hortatory nations that uh, have long traditions, not just of foreign policy ambition, but of foreign policy ambition uh, with missionary energy. Uh, and that's an interesting parallel between, uh, between the two countries. Uh, in terms of the, of the moment that we're at, you know, we can start with the, uh, with the United States and then turn uh, our gaze to Russia. Uh, United States is in a period where uh, a lot of the fundamental foreign policy questions uh, are up for grabs. Of course, we have a president who's been inaugurated a few days ago, who was previously a two-term vice president, long experience in the Senate, and you know very established foreign policy views. And we have a number of very, very pedigreed and experienced figures who are sort of gathering around uh, President Biden and his foreign policy team. But I think it would be foolish to dismiss the last four years as some kind of fleeting aberration. I think Donald Trump put a lot of American foreign policy into question. Some of that is internal and some of that is the perception of uh, allies, partners and adversaries. Uh, and it's not clear many of the answers that the Biden administration is going to give in the next six uh, to 12 months. That makes it, in effect, especially interesting uh, that Russia has done, I think, what we wouldn't have expected Russia to do uh, a year ago, uh, what we wouldn't have expected Belarus to have done uh, before this past summer. But Russia has entered into one of its perennial phases uh, of deep political questioning. Now, I don't think that Russia is yet at a revolutionary moment. It could come to that. This may be the beginning of a trajectory. Uh, but over the course of last weekend, it's not just the numbers of people that came out, and it's not simply the fact that people came out to protest Putin and the Kremlin all across the country. That's happened uh, before. I think that there was a new willingness to confront, uh, to confront the police, to throw snowballs, uh, to sort of communicate 
uh, either impatience or disrespect uh, or uh, genuine anger. Uh, and that's a new dynamic. That's a new forest. And so uh, that's, I think, what we really have to first try to come to grips with as a Russian dynamic and then in turn what that might mean for U.S. foreign policy. I have to say, I particularly enjoyed the stories of the snowballs being thrown at authority. It really that really appealed to me. Um, uh, Michael, how do we understand the role of Alexei Navalny? Because he seems to be a pivotal figure, at least in the contemporary manifestation of what you're describing as public anger toward the Putin regime. Well, first, I would make a few points about what Navalny is not or is not up to now. Uh, as a political figure. He's not a Fidel Castro uh, or Che Guevara. He's not uh, a Vladimir Lenin, although I'm uh, bemused as a historian by the fact that Navalny arrived uh, in Moscow via uh, a budget airline from Germany. It does have this slight echo of Vladimir Lenin arriving in St. Petersburg in 1917 via uh, a German train. But uh, Navalny is no uh, Lenin. Uh, he's not a revolutionary in the sense that he doesn't have a party or a movement behind him. And I think he also doesn't have uh, an ideology. Uh, and uh, he might be a sort of prophet, uh, the figure who goes first, and you'll then in turn sort of later stages of this revolutionary moment, if that's what it is, you'll see a sort of genuine political leader or revolutionary uh, emerge. But that's not Navalny. Although at times that image is, I think, superimposed onto him uh, by some Western observers. I think what Navalny is in the Russian context uh, is two profound things. He's a decent man. Uh, he's courageous. Uh, he speaks a kind of direct truth that uh, official Russia uh, does not at all speak. Uh, and he is an anti-corruption activist. I would use the word activist rather than politician uh, in the case of Navalny. He um, has the skills of an investigative journalist. He turned up in the video that uh, generated the protests in addition to his arrest. He turned up a set of new documents, uh, images sort of presented to the world, really, uh, the uh, you know, the photographic evidence uh, of Putin's uh, overpriced and, and gaudy palace uh, on the Black Sea. Uh, and in that sense, he allows, um, or he does not allow Russians to forget the truth that's before their eyes, that their government is immensely corrupt uh, and that the regime is fundamentally uh, kleptocratic. So Navalny's most important political role as of now uh, is in the elucidation of the problem. He has shown Russians uh, what the problem is, and you could say that that problem is Putin or that problem is the system that Putin has created. And the core argument of Navalny's video is that Putin does not serve the needs uh, of the Russian people. He may claim that, he may wrap himself in the garb uh, of a Russian nationalist, but that is not uh, the truth. Uh, and I think he's enormously effective in the conveyance of that message. Um, let's take a step back, though. What degree of, of political freedom or freedom of speech exists in Russia today? What has been the nature of democratic activism in the last 10 years or so in Russia? So if we compare it to ourselves, I think what what is first apparent uh, are the are the limits and the, the hindrances. Uh, there is, and this is a long, long dynamic in Russian history, what you could describe as arbitrary rule uh, in the Kremlin. So at any moment, if you're a theater director, if you're a newspaper editor, uh, if you're a teacher, um, you know, professor, what have you, you could fall into disgrace uh, and into real trouble. Unlikely that you would get killed. That does happen occasionally, but it's more that you could lose your income. 
or, or, or be incarcerated. And the state sort of reserves that power, uh, which is the power of intimidation. What the state has signaled, the Putin regime has signaled, is that you cannot do certain things. You cannot go after uh, in public the wealth and uh, power of the Kremlin elite. Uh, you can't speak about Vladimir Putin's family. Uh, you can't sort of air the dirty laundry of these figures uh, in public. Of course, that's precisely what Navalny has done, and it's one of the reasons why he was uh, arrested. But to answer your question properly, Zachary, by Russian standards, in other words, not with the U.S. or Germany or Australia as a reference point, by Russian standards, it's actually a fairly free phase and has been, of course, after 1991, it was an anything goes period where you could mock the regime. And, you know, even when Putin came to power, there was a famous caricature show where Putin was made fun of and presented as a puppet. Uh, and that was pretty swiftly taken off the air. Uh, but, you know, Russians have access to the Internet, uh, much more so than uh, Chinese do. Uh if you want to tell jokes, if you want to make your points about politics clear in private circles and semi-public circles, uh, all of that is possible. And of course, Russians travel prodigiously uh, and uh, you know have access, especially those who can read foreign languages, have access to the world's media. So in that sense, relative to the Soviet Union, what you see is a much, much freer Russia. And that, in fact, is one of the problems that Putin is going to have to navigate in the next six months or the next 12 months. He could start to rescind those freedoms, but I think those have become very uh, familiar. They've become very uh, expected in Russia. I don't think that Russians would look kindly at having those uh, having those taken away. So it's uh, it's a freedom up to this one very specific point where you shouldn't be critical uh, of the regime. And I think most Russians, you know, Navalny ex- accepted, know those rules and 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 play by them. Uh, but it's certainly not complete freedom. And why, Michael, are um, citizens now in large number, and, and it's certainly not a majority, but but still it is a large number, uh, and often in, in very difficult weather conditions in, in, in Irkutsk at 20 below zero, going out and throwing snowballs at the police? Why, why are they willing to challenge this this red line that you've described that was, that's been very clear that you don't go to the point of criticizing the regime? I think in the end it's a mystery. Uh, and I think it's one of the most fascinating mysteries in in the history of politics, these threshold horizons that people have uh, when it comes to accepting certain things, accepting repression, accepting poverty, uh, accepting uh, difficult circumstances. And for most of human history, people are accepting those things. And then you have these remarkable moments where there is the refusal uh, to accept any longer. Uh, and in terms of factors that are internal uh, to Russia, I don't think that it's the charisma of Navalny. I would, in fact, not focus all that much on the person of Navalny, interesting uh, as he is. I think this is a long-term process, uh, and I think it's a two-fold dynamic that Putin has created, where there is uh, an official apparatus. Sometimes people marvel at this with Putin, that he sort of created this and runs it so smoothly, an official apparatus uh, of media propaganda and disinformation. Now, on the one hand, you have the free internet, which I mentioned a moment ago, on the other hand, on television, you have a kind of neo-Soviet dynamic where the news is managed and uh, all kinds of untruths are uh, systematically uh, propagated. Now, there's a risk with that uh, kind of propaganda. This happened in the in the Soviet Union that people slowly start start to disbelieve it, mistrust it. Uh, and maybe they mistrust it because they've read an article in the New York Times or because they've traveled somewhere. Or maybe they just mistrust it 
because they see a deteriorating living standard in their own life. Uh, and the official news is telling them that uh, everything is on the up and up. So that's one, uh, you know, sort of real problem that Putin uh, has created for himself. Uh, and the other, uh, I think, is more uh, more structural, that you have a decline in living standards. For the first eight years of Putin's rule, 2000, 2008, you had rising oil prices. You had Putin, who did, in a sense, come in and sort of stabilize the country after Yeltsin. He uh, kicked out some of the oligarchs, which I think was a popular move in Russia. And I think it was possible to believe then that this was a kind of Russian-style modernizer, not an autocrat, not a nationalist, uh, but a modernizer. Now, on the autocracy, he eventually delivered. On the nationalism, he's happy to deliver. He simply hasn't delivered on the modernization. Standard of living is deteriorating. Uh, and you could make as a final point uh, the argument, and I think this was visible in the protest, that for a younger generation to have seen 20 years of Vladimir Putin's rule and to know that the Constitution has been manip manipulated in such a way as to make Putin's rule sort of permanent as long as the man lives, uh, you know, there's, that's, I think, where the threshold uh, has, uh, has been most acutely confronted. I don't think a young 25-year-old Russian necessarily wants to live with 20 more years of, of Putin as a, as a leader or 20 more years uh, of Putinism. And that's, I think, the calculation. It's too much. He's been in power for too long. Uh, you know, the lies have, 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 have come back to, uh, to haunt uh, Putin in some respects. Uh, and there's a calculation that a lot of Russians are making about how worth it it is. And they're coming to the conclusion that it's, it's necessary to confront. But to return to my initial point, I think it's a bit mysterious, as it was in Belarus this summer, as it was in Ukraine in 2013, a bit mysterious why these moments happen when they do. It's it's so fascinating, Michael, because it is one of the truisms of history that um, moments of upheaval only look inevitable in retrospect, and and I think that's what we're living through now. And we, of course, don't know where where it will end. One of the points you make so well in your New Republic article that I, I commend to everyone is um, that that the next step is unpredictable. We're not sure. We cannot assume that the uprisings will, will grow. We cannot assume they'll go away. Uh, there, there's so many possibilities. That, I think, is the context for your analysis of American policy. How should uh, the Biden administration be thinking about this, assuming which we know is true that they care? How should they be approaching this issue? Well, it's a huge challenge. Uh, for the Biden administration, I, I, I think that uh, they probably didn't expect, they knew that Russia would be a big issue and a big problem, but they didn't expect that the problems would make themselves felt this immediately uh, and in such a confusing way. I think that their instincts in some respects have been just right so far and here would refer back to the phone call between Presidents Putin and Biden uh, yesterday for which we've received, of course, typically two very separate readouts from the Russian and the, and, and the American governments. Uh, but, uh, you know, in that uh, uh, in the readout that we have, you know, Biden has been emphatic about the principles that are at stake. And that is the good tradition of American foreign policy, I would say, uh, and very relevant to what's happening uh, and the terrain on which I think this should sort of remain for the U.S. In other words, U.S. is affirming uh, the right to free elections in Russia. It's affirming the right to freedom of assembly. Uh, it is stating the truth about Navalny. Uh, which is that this is uh, a political trial that has you know, sort of nothing to do with Russian law uh, and is uh, a, per a perversion of justice. And I you know, commend the Biden administration for speaking directly about this, and they should continue doing that 
uh, as long as this uh, you know sort of situation obtains. Uh, where I think they have to be more careful uh, and more considered is in the intersection of democracy promotion, American style, and the geopolitics of the uh, entire region. I think that the U.S. government here, universities and think tanks and American citizens, I think, have a different um, set of responsibilities and a different set of options. But for the U.S. government, you cannot extract yourself from the geopolitics of this relationship. So the idea that we can go into Russia and be a sort of neutral party and say, well, <laughs> we'll mediate between the Russian government and civil society and we're going to sort of be the vehicle uh, by which civil society triumphs in the situation, uh, that to me seems not just naive, uh, but implicitly quite dangerous because important as these protests have been, and I think they're going to grow in size, we'll see more this weekend, and when the weather gets better, uh, they'll grow even further. The president of Russia does remain Putin. He's the one in charge of the nuclear codes. He's the one in charge of the Russian military. And he is the point of contact uh, for uh, the U.S. government. So you can affirm principle. You can hope for the best. Uh, you can speak the truth. Uh, you know, maybe there's a sort of media agenda that the U.S. could develop for uh, Russian speakers that can cut through some of the lies and propaganda of Russian media. But that's as far as I would take it. I think uh, from the Biden administration's perspective, I think it's very important to remember that the agency here in terms of Russian politics, Russian democracy, that's the agency of the Russian people. Uh, and it's very difficult, I know, for Americans not to get excited about the possibility uh, of a widening democratic initiative. Uh, but uh, if you do that and forget the geopolitics of it, uh, you could set both us and Russia down a very dangerous path. Uh, Michael, just to, to complicate that even further, one of the other challenges, it seems, is that uh, President Biden has inherited a long list of uh, bad behaviors, threatening behaviors by Russia, for which he wants to take action, it seems. The most recent being Operation Solar Wind, where uh, yes. from which we still don't know the full magnitude of, but it was a major, major hack of American military, civilian, commercial uh, websites and information uh, orchestrated by the Kremlin for which the Trump administration did not uh, respond. Uh, the Biden administration is going to want to respond to this. How do we balance the, it seems, almost necessary um, strong, forceful response to Russian attacks on the United States without at the same time creating an easy enemy for Putin to rally people around? Absolutely. Well, the first analytical step uh, is to disassociate Navalny from, from these problems and these policy challenges. Navalny, from an American perspective, is not the solution to the problem of Russian meddling, hacking, and, and the many things that Russia does to undermine the U.S. in the Middle East, in Europe, uh, in Asia and, and, and elsewhere, it would be naive to the point of delusional to say that we can solve these problems by encouraging a political triumph of Navalny over Putin. I'm not aware of people making those arguments, but uh, I, I, I exaggerate for the sake of, uh, of analytical clarity. Uh, absolutely, uh, the Biden administration inherits something very, very troublesome uh, with uh, with Russia right from the get-go. And it's, it's all of the things that you've mentioned. Uh, in addition to President Trump for the last four years really having muddied the waters, uh, not just with our allies, but with the American public, that uh, he's politicized the Russia issue. President Trump was impeached the first time uh, because of um, efforts to manipulate American politics using, on the first level, information from Ukraine. But it's very possible... Uh, I would say even probable that that was Russian disinformation 
from the intelligence services that made its way to Ukraine and then via Giuliani and others uh, into the, the bloodstream of the American body politic. So I think Biden has got to deal with all of the sort of cyber and national security threats that Russia presents. Uh, and he's also got to educate the American public on the way in which Russia is a foreign policy problem. It's not a political football to be kicked around in the United States. That's uh, all uh, enormously challenging. But that, I underscore, is not a Navalny issue. That's a U.S. policy issue that we work on with our allies. And when it comes to the hacking and solar winds and all of that, this first and foremost is a question of domestic resilience. So we should be thinking about you know, how we organize the relevant agencies of the U.S. government, how we message to the American population, how we alter uh, legislation, perhaps, or create new agencies, policy instruments for dealing with this kind of uh, hacking and meddling and and uh, uh, and interference. But don't tie it into too neat a bundle and say, you know, uh, where um, uh, where Russia is the problem, Navalny is the solution. Michael, one of the uh, people you and I both revere as a scholar and historian and policymaker of U.S.-Russian relations, of course, is George Kennan. Uh, and you've uh, published actually a whole book on uh, Kennan's influences uh, with reflections from many different perspectives. Kennan uh, famously wrote that the, the best thing the United States could do in its relations with Russia is actually uh, be the kind of example that we want to be and use our example to over the long term uh, influence the opinions and thoughts of Russians. What does that mean today? Assuming there's there's still some logic in that, what does that mean for us in, in our difficult democratic moment in the United States? Right. Well, Kennan, as always, was sort of ringing my ears when I wrote the New Republic piece. And I, I paraphrase him in one particular way uh, without citing him. I'll, I'll confess to a fellow academic, but uh, you know, this is, this is journalism after all. But uh, I say when it comes to democracy promotion in Russia, the U.S. government should do nothing. Um, you know, that's maybe an overstatement, but that is a direct paraphrase of what George Kennan said uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, that, uh, and also after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that uh, the role of the United States is not to bring uh, democracy to Russia. And I think Kennan was probably skeptical, given his reading of Russian history, that there might ever be democracy in Russia, which is an interesting, but of course, debatable, uh, debatable point. I wonder, Jeremy and Zachary, if we haven't already scored an enormous victory in this respect, and it will take a long time to piece together the chronology of what happened with Navalny and why certain things happened when, we're only at the beginning of trying to understand it. But what I mean by this is that we sent the best possible signal to the Russian people in the last couple of weeks, not on January 6th, but in the last couple of weeks by having the inauguration that we had. Uh, in the end, the vice president did show up. Uh, the Republican members of uh, Congress did show up. Uh, the president gave, uh, you know, sort of normal, sensible, uh, appealing speech. Uh, the day passed without incident. It was not violent. And since then, Biden has been installed uh, as president. One can't underestimate the importance of this. And I mean, not for American politics, but I mean, internationally and for American diplomacy. What is a Russian looking at that sea? If you're frustrated with Putin, uh, you're annoyed by the fact that you really don't have a say via elections. You sort of know that Putin has put these fences and enormous amounts of policing and military power between himself and the Russian people. It's very, very difficult to get rid of him. And you look at the United States and you see that it is possible in that country to have an election, uh, to change command, to change rule, uh, to have you know a peaceful transfer of power. Let's put a footnote by that phrase. But in the end, that's what it uh, that's what it was. That 
may have helped American diplomacy more than anything else vis-a-vis Russia. And I wonder if that's not a cause of the protests in Russia, which after all do come uh, after the inauguration, a couple of days uh, after the inauguration. I think that that's the linchpin. You know, that should be understood as a part of American strategy. It's not just a a ritual that takes place and it's not just a, a detail of American politics that you have this constitutional order and it does uh, function. That's the foundation. And how you communicate that effectively is a very difficult problem. I don't like the missionary zeal, as we you know mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, where you sort of pound your chest and, uh, you know, point very directly to yourself. But certainly you would want to use uh, government communications, other means to make sure that Russians see what's happened here in the last couple of weeks, because it is remarkable uh, and it does contain for them, I think, a certain kind of uh, of inspiration. And indeed, that was there in the very speech of the uh, of the president on Inauguration Day, the example of our power on the one hand and the power of our example uh, on uh, on, the, on the other. So that sort of Neo-Kennedy-esque phrase uh, should be understood not just as rhetoric, but really as strategy. Right. I, I think George Kennan would agree with you very strongly. And, and sometimes our moments of uh, difficulty in the United States and how we come through them are even more important than, uh, the, than the way we've done it in the past. It's showing people that even in more difficult situations, we can still uh, affirm some basic democratic principles and de- basic democratic practices. I think so. I mean, I think that this goes back to the history of the Cold War. Uh, And if you think of the turbulent decade of the 1970s for the United States, I think it begins that decade in a state of political turmoil because of the Vietnam War. You go through uh, Watergate and you have a phase of the Cold War where I think the Soviet Union was really very self-confident and felt itself to be uh, advancing. But uh, it's not just the election of Reagan in 1980 that changes the dynamic to a degree. He does bring a new style to the, to the U.S.-Soviet relationship. But the fact that the U.S. endured all of that and didn't descend into tyranny or didn't descend into anarchy uh, is enormously important. And I'm sure for the dissident movements from Poland uh, to Czechoslovakia to Russia in the late 70s, early 80s, just the fact that the U.S. could pull through these things, that it didn't fall apart in the midst of the Vietnam War, was enormously uh, inspiring. And perhaps there are similar work, rhythms at work in the U.S.-Russian relationship Uh, relationship today. I think it's a wonderful point, Michael. And um, I think it's the basis for your next article. I think it's something you should (laughs) expand upon. Zachary, do you find this persuasive? Do do you and your young young cohort who are examining and looking out at the world today and all the difficulties the United States faces, do you see uh, a a sense of purpose with regard to Russia? I mean, not a missionary purpose, as Michael's made clear, but a commitment to doing some of the things we can to uh, encourage democratic change in Russia. Is that something that motivates your generation? How do you think about this? Well, I think it, it definitely does. I think democratic uh, democratic reforms uh, worldwide are something that are very important to my my generation. But I do think there is a failure of our education system uh, twofold. First of all, to to teach an accurate an accurate recount of of American foreign policy successes, not to act as if um, all American foreign policy successes have come through force or through overhanded actions. And I think. I think at times it can seem like an easier way to teach American history, but I think it really does a disservice. And then again, I do think, as always, there is this American caricature of Russia and other societies like Iran uh, as as, as just completely autocratic and, and doomed to be forever autocratic, and I think we need to highlight the uh, the, the democratic uh, creativity 
and 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 spirit in these countries, even in times when they are ruled by very autocratic regimes. I think that's very well said, Zachary. And and Michael, your work has done so much to just as Zachary said to to take the the dull prose of uh, what is a, a false caricature of autocracy and give us the poetry, Michael, of the uh, complexity and the various different courageous uh, and creative elements of change in Russia and elsewhere. And the way the United States can modestly uh, tap into that in one form or another. Uh, it's really it's really been wonderful talking to you, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a delight. Thank you, Jeremy and Zachary, for your your, your lovely questions and uh, uh, for raising the question of democracy in Russia at this hour of uh, of drama and transition. And thank you, Zachary, for for giving us a poem, as always, to get started, a dialogue between Russia and the U.S., uh, similar to the dialogue we need to have in broader terms. And thank you most of all uh, to our audience for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.